in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2, verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired <laughs> word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious." May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Two quotations for you this morning. I, I've been in the habit of only doing one, but both of these were so good I couldn't, I couldn't deprive you. <laughs> so the first quotation is from the Reverend Thomas Adams. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. First, because there are no means of salvation out of it no word to teach, no sacraments to confirm, and especially because out of the church there is no Christ, and out of Christ is no salvation. Who have not the church their mother cannot have God their father. This teacheth us to honor our mother, and like little children to hang at her breasts for our sustenance. Suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory, Isaiah 66, 11. Run not to strange nurses for poison when you may have the pure milk of your own mother. Desire like babes that sincere milk of the gospel that you may grow by it. The second quotation is from the Reverend Henry Scudder and his work, The Christian's Daily Walk. Read the word with a hunger and thirst after knowledge and growth of grace by it with a reverent, humble, teachable, and honest heart, believing all that you read, trembling at the threatenings and judgments against sinners, rejoicing in the promises made unto and favors bestowed upon the penitent and the godly, willing and resolving to obey all the commandments. Well, these men are great men and they've helped us today with a with that understanding of desiring or desire after the word of god so if we might spend a couple of moments in review <clears throat> last week when we looked at this passage we talked about what it is to be a child we noted that peter is not speaking here by way of correction <clears throat> there are passages we'll look at them again in a moment because he's going to use the word milk in the same way. Um, sometimes in scripture when we read milk and not meat. And children and not full grown or mature. These are to chide or to correct the people of God. To move on and to grow in grace and in faith and in knowledge. That they are still as they were when they first heard about the gospel. That they've not advanced in their understanding. They've not advanced in their execution. But not here. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, being a child, as we said last week, is a desirable thing, and it is something that comports with Christian maturity. It's not contrary to it. 
We talked about credulity. You know what credulity is? Children, let me ask you a question. When your mother or your father tells you something, do you say something like this? I don't know about that. Well, no, you don't say that. You know that your mother and your father love you, and when they tell you something, it's true. And you believe it because of who said it to you. Right? Well, this is what Jesus means when he says to be converted and become like a little child. That when our father speaks to us, we, in, we involve ourselves in a certain kind of credulity. Not a vain credulity, as our larger catechism will forbid to us, but a credulity that comports with God's trustworthiness. In fact, may I say that many Christians today read the Word of God and then they, they compare the Word of God with what they see with their eyes. They compare the Word of God with what they read in the science journals. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not a salvation issue per se, but many of our, although it can be, if taken to its ultimate end, but many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have read the science journals and have decided that evolution is how God made the world. Whereas the scriptures are very clear that that's exactly not how he made it. And so what have they done? Well, they've done, they have laid down what they observe next to the word of God and said these are separate but equal witnesses. We don't involve ourselves in that. We have a credulity when it comes to God. This is part of what it means to be like a child. We want to believe what our father tells us by virtue of him being our father and he told us. Secondly, we talked about provision and care. That we rest upon his provision as sufficient. And children, you may be tempted, and certainly there are television shows out there and cartoons and other media that will tempt you to doubt your parents' provision for you. Remember that those are wicked temptations. They're not helping you when they show children complaining about their mom and dad on TV because they didn't get what they wanted. They're not helping you at all. In fact, they're hurting you. Best at that point to simply hit the mute button. Best at that point, maybe even just to switch it off. Turn it to something that will edify you rather than tear you down. We, we trust and we rest upon our Father's care and provision. And we do that because He's omniscient and He knows what we need. And He provides exactly the right stuff at exactly the right time for exactly the right reason. For exactly the right outcome. He knows what he's doing. So not only credulity. But it's, it's application. Uh, provision. Care and rest. And then dependence. And resting freedom from care. And security with God. Right? We, have, we don't worry about him. And his mind toward us. We want to be like a child. Like a child that is in, in, in the best of homes. And we want to think of the best of fatherhood here. That when a child is raised in the best of homes, they don't doubt their parents. They rest upon them. They're not worried about whether or not their parents love them, even when they tell them no. 
The sad part is that we've made the love of parents in our current society a material thing. If you love your child, you'll buy them stuff, whatever they ask for. Children, will you agree with me that that's probably the worst way to parent that there is? You don't want everything that you want. You don't know what you should want. You need parents to help you with that. And we need a heavenly father to help us with that. No matter how old we are, we want to be like children before him in that. And so these are some of the things that we talked about last week. Just reminders. Then we said the second thing is, um, we have new life in Christ, like newborn babes. And we're children like that, because we have a new life in Christ. We come into this world apart from Christ, so we come into this world as little children. I'm sorry, we come into this world as, as those who do not love him or believe in him. And then we're born into his family, like newborn babes, like that. And so that's another way that Peter will use this term. And that applies to all Christians of all time. And then the third thing that we said was growth comes to little children, right? Growth comes to little children. And so we want to grow. We want to be like children in that. That we want to grow and we want to advance. We also spoke about this incorruptible seed by which we are born again. And it cannot be lost because that seed is incorruptible. For our part, we're corruptible. (laughs) But the seed we're born by is incorruptible. And so if it is indeed by the word of God that we are born again, it is by that word of God that we are sustained. It is incorruptible. It cannot be. We cannot be unborn once we are born as newborn babes of Christ. All right, so that's where we, that's where we left off last week. The next thing that, I, that we just had a short opportunity to mention last week and that I want to uh, cause us to remember maybe a little bit more detail this morning is that we want to note the consistency, right? Remember, we stretched all the way back to 122. And when we stretched all the way back to, to 122, we said that it is loving with a pure heart fervently one another that we are commanded to do. But the reason we are commanded to do that, this command has come to those who are born again by that incorruptible seed. And if we are born again by that incorruptible seed, notice here then that Peter will point us again to that incorruptible seed, the word of God for our growth. And so we note the consistency. How is it that we are born again? By the word of God, by that word and spirit. How is it that we grow? Same thing, by that word and spirit. Okay, so there is a consistency. Um, And may I say it this way, to put it in relief, by way of comparison, beloved, you will not be taught, you will not be improved by the errors of vain philosophies and traditions of men. It is by the word of God that you will grow, and not by the theories of fallen men. uh, They only offer the stunting and arresting of true Christian maturity. And so we must leave off sipping at their cups. Now this, uh, in, you know, of course everyone agrees with that in principle. How it works out in practice may be a little bit more difficult. Right? We live in this world. We, we do things in this world that we are required to use sanctified wisdom to develop out of the word of God. 
But remember also that there are many uh, ways of doing things or systems of belief, if you will, that come to us doing an end around around the Word of God. Right? They're built on false foundations. One of the things that, uh, that we have talked about before is, and I, you know, it's not my, my bent to want to walk on people's toes. If, this, if you disagree with this, well, let's talk about it. But, you know, there are these personality tests that people do. And I've had people speak what I consider to be a foreign language to me. You know, they'll, they'll come to me and, and they'll say, well, what are you? And I, well, what do you mean? Well, I'm an EGP something. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means. But, it, but, it, but it's based on a paradigm of investigation, investigative knowledge that is both illogical and unbiblical. It's illogical in the sense that what that test that they have taken and the results of that test could best be, let's give it all the benefit of the doubt that we can, is it's a snapshot of that day. Right? It could be a lot worse than that. It could be that they didn't know and just happened to check the right boxes. And they ended up with this personality profile that may or may not apply to them how they really are. But the other thing that it does, and you'll hear people say this, they will say, I am, and then they'll give those letters, whatever they mean. And you ask them, well, how long ago did you take that test? Oh, like six, seven years ago. You haven't done anything in six or seven years? You're still that? It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. And then it's founded on paradigms that are not biblical. Not at all. Oh, there may be some remnants of natural light in them. And that does take place from time to time. But beloved, we are required here in 1 Peter 2 to be discerning with that. We're to desire the pure milk of the word. That's to be our food, our paradigm. That which feeds our minds. Not these other things that we end up... uh, pigeonholing uh, ourselves into a particular personality type that I will tell you many people end up feeling trapped in. Or they will use it as an excuse, a crutch. Oh, well, you know, I, I know, Pastor, you're asking me to do that, but I can't do that because I'm EGP whatever. We don't do that stuff well. Sorry. <laughs> the requirement remains... <laughs> You know, maybe we could get you out of that. Maybe we could grow you up rather than having you think you're always going to be like that. Right? Those, and, and that's just one species. There are all kinds of other places. We've, we've, we've talked about this before. You know, we have, a, we have a medical problem. We go to a doctor and, you know, uh, some sort of practitioner of medicine. We have maybe different theories of what we think is more effective or less effective and so on. And we go where we believe that we're going to get some treatment and good counsel and so on. Same is true with a legal matter. You know, if we have a legal matter that we're struggling with, we're going to call someone who knows the law. If we have a soul matter, very often we go to people that don't know the Lord. How can we expect to have a modern psychologist who, by the way, his profession is a misnomer because many of them are atheists and don't believe in the soul. Many of them are B.F. Skinner materialists who believe they can cure your soul with drugs, right? That your problem is chemical 
and there's really nothing immaterial going on there, that you're the sum total of your digestion and so on, how can they help you? Well, they really can't. So, beloved, let's, let's remember that as we, as we move forward in, in this passage. Let us remember that, that Christian growth, when we talk about as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. We want to grow according to the word. <coughs> and not, you know, we can grow in many different ways. We can grow in stature. We can grow in, in girth. <laughs> we can grow in all kinds of ways, right? We can grow in mental prowess. We can grow in our chess game. But what we want to grow by most of all is we want to grow by the word. This is what we're commanded to do in this passage. Um, The second thing is what Reverend Adams makes known to us here. And this is that we want to grow in a particular context. Thomas Adams is perhaps bolder than many pastors would be willing to be here today, in our day, when... He says, um, first, because there are no means of salvation out of the church, no word to teach, no sacraments to confirm, and especially because out of the church there is no Christ, and out of Christ no salvation. Who have not the church for their mother cannot have God their father. Well, these are hard words. We live in an age of uh, Christian... uh, in a sense, of Christian pietism. And that is that it really doesn't matter if you go to church or not as long as you have Jesus in your heart. Right? We'll hear that. Oh, I'm communing with God, you know, on the lake today. Sometimes that's said tongue-in-cheek, but sometimes that's said very seriously. That folks uh, have been trained to think that being a Christian really entails a, quote, personal relationship with Jesus Christ alone. Well, that's certainly not what the Puritans taught, as represented here by Thomas Adams. That there is a necessary relationship to the church. Now, our confession of faith is perhaps a little bit more uh, relieving in that in that it says that outside of the church there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And we want to make that qualification. We think that's a scriptural qualification. Um, we, can, we can talk about several instances of this. Let me just give you one as a, as a reminder of this. So, in Acts chapter 8, after the persecution of Stephen, the disciples are scattered all over the ancient world, remember that Philip, the deacon evangelist, goes to Samaria. And he begins to preach the gospel there. And he is baptizing. He has a commission to baptize. Now, there are some people that say, oh, you know, he's just doing that out on his own. Well, I, I don't think that the book of Acts supports that. If you look at the entirety of the book of Acts and the administration of the church as it took place in the early years and months of the, of, of the advance of the kingdom of Christ in that way. I don't think that, that the book of Acts really does support that. I think that Philip had a commission. And so he's an evangelist. We read about that in chapter 21 of the book of Acts. 
And then also he is baptizing and preaching. And there are a lot of people in Samaria that are coming to faith in Christ. They're ready to establish a church. And so some visitors from Jerusalem come, and you'll remember that. And there's the whole scene with Simon Magus and so on. Okay, well, we don't need to talk about Simon very much. Just to say that during a rip-roaring revival that's going on in Samaria, the Lord says to Philip, I want you to go to Gaza. Okay, and away he goes. And while he's traveling to Gaza, he's on the way there, um, he sees this chariot, and there's a man in this chariot who's returning from Jerusalem because he has just worshipped there. He's a eunuch, which means he has no children, and he is the leader of the household of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And the Lord says to Philip, Join yourself to that chariot. And so Philip comes up to the man and, and he sees that he's reading something. Well, of course, that would have been a little bit unusual in those days. Books were not as common as they are today. And so he says, what are you reading? And he's reading Isaiah 53. And he says, well, do you understand what you read? Well, how can I except someone tell me? The writer here, is he talking about himself or someone else? And so then Luke is very, very, uh, very large in his description, right? And it says that Philip got up in the chariot with him and preached unto him Jesus. And that preaching must have been pretty full because in just a little bit, um, the man says, well, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And remember, Philip says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You'll remember that verse is left out in some versions of the Bible. And then he's baptized, and immediately following that, Philip is taken to Azotus up the coast, up, up the Mediterranean coast. Here they are down in, in Gaza, in that place where, where it starts to turn toward Egypt. And so Philip goes the other way. He goes up north, and the Ethiopian unit goes that way. And we don't hear about him ever again. Here's this elect man that God sent a minister to to preach the gospel to him. In other words, it wasn't enough for him to be riding along in a chariot alone reading Isaiah 53. Now we might say, well, he didn't really have a visible church to go to. Well, he may not have. That may be an extraordinary circumstance in his life. But he did have a preacher that came to him and brought the word of God to him. And so... We want to remember, let's turn to Ephesians 4 as we think on this for a moment, that when Peter says to these, uh, this, these scattered uh, tribes that he's talking to, when he says to them uh, that you're born again by the word of God and that you are caused to grow by that same word of God, that Peter really does include a context here that is often forgotten. It's not simply us in our Bibles in the closet with Jesus. Notice what the Lord has done in the days of the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul will quote here from um, Psalm 68. He says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now he, that he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended first, into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up 
far above all heavens that he might fill all things. I think that your authorized version rightly puts those parentheses in there. And that if you read from verse 8, and then you pick up the reading in verse 11, you'll get, a, you'll get the flow of the apostle's meaning here. Yes, he does imbibe in a, in a parenthesis here to talk about Christ and his descent and ascent. That is correct. But then notice, he gave gifts to men. That's how verse 8 ends. And verse 11 begins, and he gave some. Okay, so these are the gifts that Christ gave. He gave apostles. He gave prophets. He gave evangelists. He gave pastors and teachers. And what did he give those men for? Well, it says very clearly, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What is this ministry of the word that is described in those five teaching offices? What is that ministry? It is threefold. In the first, it is the perfecting of the saints. The Greek word katartizo there, it means to mend or to bring to its proper order and use. If you have a Bible that translates that as equipping, keep in mind that the word katartizo very rarely means equipping. It always means mending and bringing into its wholeness. The apostles were mending their nets when Jesus came by. Katartizo. Not equipping their nets. The nets weren't doing something on their own. (laughs) They weren't equipping the nets. They were mending them. They were putting them in proper order. The ministry of the word of God is a ministry that takes place in the context of the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and in all and through you all in verses 5 and 6. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. We're endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in what context? In the context of the church, obviously. So when we talk about being born again by the word of God and being and growing by the word of God, we don't separate that from the church. As a matter of fact, we augment it by the context of the church. Let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, we have spent some time recently talking about the marks of the church. What some of the Scots would call the notes of the church. Right? The indicators that the true church here exists. Do you remember the three Reformation marks that were given to the church? Yeah. The pure preaching of the word including the gospel. The pure administration of the sacraments according to the ordinance of Christ. Not according to superstitions. Not sacerdotally. And then third was godly order and discipline in that church. And beloved may I say it this way. The reason our our Reformation divines saw that and emphasized it. Was because that is the process of understanding by which the people of God are brought to maturity. It is indeed that pure preaching of the word and gospel, no doubt. And of course, that's what Peter's talking about here explicitly. But implicitly, he's also talking about the right administration of the sacraments because the sacraments are that visible word, not separated from the word of God, but an augment to us that, that, that confirms and, and advances our faith when rightly partaken of. And then the third thing, the order and discipline of the church that will not take place if you're simply meeting with yourself in your closet. You can't excommunicate yourself and you can't 
bring yourself into communion with Christ in that way. That there is a formal process by which you confess Christ before men and you are maintained in that fellowship with him by the communion of saints. The communion of saints is another, is another way that the word of God is proclaimed and exampled and advanced to our understanding. And so there's a context in which this word is given out. This, this pure milk is slurped up, if you will. And without that context, we're going to miss what is being taught. And so, for the perfecting of the saints, and by perfecting there, I think the Westminster Divines have it right when in chapter uh, 25 on the church, they will say that God has given the ministry ordinances and oracles of the church. What is the ministry? That's the preaching, the ordinances, the sacraments, the oracles, that is the word of God itself from which all those things arise, for the, quote, gathering and perfecting of the saints. That the, that the Greek word katartizo here, that it has a twofold designation, that it's going to bring the people of God, number one, to their full tale, to their full accounting, to their full number, right? There was one that was missing on his way home to Ethiopia, but it was through the preaching of the word that he was brought in. And it is through the preaching of the word that the people of God will be perfected in their numerical way. But they will also be perfected in their maturation, if you will. So it's the gathering and perfecting of the saints by the ministry of the word. Secondly, it's for the work of the ministry. That is that the minister of God is a servant of Christ. And so he's not advancing his own cause. He's not advancing his own word. He advances the word of Christ. And as we've said before, he works for him and not for the people. I think many churches have that wrong today. They think that the minister works for the people, but he doesn't. He works for Christ. He's his minister. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man so account of us as ministers of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And then thirdly, for the edification of the body of Christ. Edification is an important principle. And yet all of these things are given to what? What, what did Paul start out with? To the teaching ministry. That is, when we take the word of God and explain it, unfold it, unpack it, connect it, apply it. That is for the gathering and perfecting of the, uh, of the saints. That is for the service that the minister does unto Christ. And that is for the edifying of the body of Christ. So that the people of God will go forth themselves and learn to speak the language of Zion one to another and edify one another that we may learn how to do that rightly. That interpretation of this passage in Ephesians 4 maintains the distinctiveness of the ministry and the duty of all the people of God in edification, ministry and members alike. So when we hear from Peter that we are to grow by the word of God, it's not, it's not a bare context, right? Thomas Adams tells us that we are to grow thereby in the context of our mother, the church. And that word mother, as it is used of the church, that was common among our Puritan divines. Samuel Rutherford used it. Rutherford said, when your mother errs, when you see that, you're, that, that the church that you're a part of 
has developed doctrine that is not in keeping with Christ, what do you do? You pray for your mother and you plead for your mother. You don't abandon her. You pray and plead for your mother instead. So that term mother, um, although it can be misused, and it often has, um, still there is a right application of that because it is by uh, our mother, and we'll see this in a little bit from the quotation in Isaiah 66, it is by our mother, the church, that this word is properly and formally preached to us. Oh yes, we are to make use of it privately, absolutely. You know me, I'm not telling you to do anything except that. I'm not, uh, I'm not taking that off the table, but I am saying that that duty that we have to make use of the Word of God, to grow by it in our private devotions, is sweetened, enhanced, and furthered in the public ordinances. That makes sense? This is why God has given the ministry. Unto this Catholic visible church, Confession of Faith 25.3, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and doth, by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Notice that those that the ministry, ordinances, and oracles have been given to whom? To that visible Catholic Church. Not Catholic, Roman Catholic, Catholic Universal. <coughs> Excuse me. And notice that this is also, may I say it this way, this is Westminster's version of what the Belgic Confession says. The way the Belgic Confession says this particular topic is if the pure preaching of the gospel is there, the pure administration of the sacraments, and godly discipline is there, that is a true church of Christ from which no man has a right to separate himself. That's how Guido de Bray said it in the 16th century, around 1563 two or one, something like that. Well, 80 years later, 85 years later or so, what the Westminster Divines say is that the Lord has given to this Catholic visible church the ministry, ordinances, and oracles. And may I say it this way? Where those things do not exist, we still may have a church depending on the circumstances, but it cannot rest or exist like that. It cannot maintain the status of church like that. The, the New Testament pattern is that the ministers of the gospel are sent forth for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. Right? As an old pastor of ours used to say, the congregational church in scripture, scripturally speaking, rises up out of the ministerial church. Now there may be extraordinary movements that God does, and he does that. That's fine. We don't unchurch people because their founding was not quite what we were after. We don't do that. We don't unchurch them for their government. We don't unchurch them if their worship isn't exactly like ours. No. However, to say all of that is to say that, that we want this context of the pure milk of the word in the church, not outside of her. The larger catechism says it this way. What are the special privileges of the visible church? The visible church hath the privilege of being under God's special care and government, of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies, and of enjoying the communion of saints 
the ordinary means of salvation, and offers of grace by Christ to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whosoever believes shall be saved, and excluding none who will come (coughs) unto him. So this is a part of our confessional dogma. This is what we believe the scriptures teach, beloved. That when we talk about the pure milk of the word, we're not talking about lone rangerism. We're talking about these things existing in the context of God's people. The Apostle Paul will say it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I believe the us there in verse 18 refers to the teaching office of the church, the teachers of the church. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not, and, uh, sorry, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray, you in Christ's stead. Corinthian church, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And let's keep our counsel and violate the chapter breaks. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see what the apostle does there. It's very clear. The Lord has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. So we're going to tell you, Corinthians, you must be reconciled to God, and there's no day like today. This is the gathering and perfecting of the saints that we were talking about here. The ministry, ordinances, and oracles of God are given for this very reason. And this section then will stretch what what Paul speaks of here. It stretches all the way through chapter 7 and verse 4. I think that's a typo. It should be 7-1. And so in chapter 6, then he goes on to speak about uh, division, right? Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You're the people of God. You have been called outwardly at least to Christ. If you continue in this unholy alliance with unbelievers, this calling will be in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. That is the grace, the exhibited grace that comes to you in the preaching of the gospel. You must be born again by it and in God's gracious ordinance of of teaching you will be advanced by it. You will be caused to grow by it. It is that that we desire. Next, as Peter uses the term milk, we want to say what we said before. And that is that this is not an insult to them. It is not a correction of them. He doesn't use milk here as he used it with them in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, as Paul used it with them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
where he said, I fed you with milk and not meat. You weren't able to bear it. Right? You're yet carnal, he says. You're, you're fraught with division. You're showing yourselves not spiritual men, but carnal men. Yeah, you're in the visible church. Yeah, you're called to be saints. All of that is true, but you're showing yourselves to be carnal and not spiritual men by your, by your divisive ways. And so I fed you with milk. That would be a corrective to them. <coughs> we saw the same thing in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. By now you ought to be teachers by reason of the time, but you need to go back and have someone teach you again the first principles, the milk rather than the meat. Okay, Peter is not contrasting milk with meat here in our passage under study. He is calling it milk for some very specific reasons. Um, all Christians should crave the Word of God, studying it and memorizing it and seeking to understand it, that it might have a lasting impression upon their souls and that their thinking should be changed and made spiritual and conformed to God's own thinking. We'll talk about how babies crave and what that means in a moment. But one thing that, that I want to make sure and cover with you today be, before we move on to that is that it must be that pure, unmixed, and unadulterated milk. It must be the pure milk of the word. The sincere milk of the word is how the authorized version puts it. This is a very important point. The word we take in that it's not just the words of Scripture, but the spiritual meaning of Scripture by the illumination of the Spirit, its primary author. To the extent that the spiritual truth of Scripture is mixed with the doctrines and commandments of men is the same extent to which Christians will be malnourished or worse, deformed by error. It's the pure milk of the word alone and when Peter uses that word pure, a necessary implication of that, a necessary consequence of that, is that anything other than the pure milk of the word is not edifying. It is not something that will help you to grow. It is something instead that will work against your spiritual vitality. That's why he puts the word pure or sincere in there. Beloved, may I say it this way? Your souls are built to be nourished by the word of God alone. And so everything that we receive from whatever source it comes from must be brought to that bar. That which is in keeping with scripture we receive and that which is not in keeping with scripture we refuse as harmful to our souls. There's an old story that my wife tells. It's, it's a great little story. She went to the hospital with a lady to have, uh, so that she, she could be of assistance to her to have her baby. And there was a nurse there. Uh, the way my wife tells the story is she was this older German nurse that spoke with a broken accent. And she had this particular mindset. And she was... She was going to do everything she can to press this mindset forward. Well, this lady that went to the hospital wanted only to breastfeed her baby. 
She didn't want to give that baby any formula or any water or anything like that. She, she figured that this is what God gave her to give to her child, and that's what she was going to do. And that even if she didn't understand, and even if science said otherwise, she was going to trust the Lord with that. So this was, uh, this was on the orders, and this nurse kept coming in in her broken German accent. Oh, I'll just give the baby a little formula. And over and over and over and over again, they had to say, no, you're not going to give that baby any formula. You're going to bring her here so that she can be nursed. Over and again. And we'll, and we'll find that kind of opposition from time to time. People think they know better. Beloved, let us never think we know better than the pure, unmixed Word of God. We will never know better than that. That's what is nourishing for our souls. That's what the Lord has given to us. This is what Peter tells us. And when he puts that word pure in there, he tells us to take everything else away then. Everything else away. And there are places in Scripture where where we could go to show this. Let's go to Jeremiah 23 for a moment. There are the the passages that we see more often, say in Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul will use words like spoil and beguile, rob, right? That if you look, if you don't hold fast to the head, if you look apart from his word, the word of Christ to something else, you'll be spoiled. You'll be You'll be uh, taken captive. That's, that word, that's what that word spoil means there in Colossians chapter 2. You'll be taken captive. Notice Jeremiah 23. We'll begin our reading in verse 33. When this people or the prophet or a priest shall ask thee, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? Thou shalt then say unto them, What burden? I will even forsake you, saith the Lord. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people that shall say, The burden of the Lord, I will even punish that man and his house. Thus shall ye say, Everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, What hath the Lord answered and what hath the Lord spoken? And the burden of the Lord shall ye mention no more. For every man's word shall be his burden. For ye have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus shalt thou say to the prophet, What hath the Lord answered thee? And what hath the Lord spoken? But since ye say, The burden of the Lord, therefore thus saith the Lord. Because ye say this word, The burden of the Lord. (coughs) I have sent unto you, saying, Ye shall not say the burden of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you. And I will forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers and cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. They had taken a scriptural term, right? The Naum, the the prophet Nahum's name is related to this Hebrew word Naum, which is the burden of the Lord, right? The prophetic burden. And it was called a burden for the prophets sometimes because when it came upon them, it was very costly to them. Remember Ezekiel, right? He sees the vision. Down to the ground he goes. He's on his hands and knees. He can't even raise himself up. And the Lord finally lifts him up and speaks to him, right? It was called a burden because very often it was costly and difficult to hear. 
Well, the people of God picked up on that. And they said, okay, what's the burden now? <coughs> this word that God has given us, what's that burden? How heavy is it going to be today? And in order to lighten the load, what had they done? They had perverted the words of the Lord. It wasn't the pure word of God. And you know how you can tell that it, was, it, that it wasn't the pure word of God that they were hearing? Because they heard the word of God as a burden to them. Instead, the Lord tells them to change the way they ask for his word. What has the Lord answered? In other words, terms that are easier, terms that are lighter, terms that, that are actually more in keeping with a, an appreciation for the Lord speaking to them and what that really does mean. But because they had perverted the words of the Lord, the Lord says, there will be no burden to this people. Every man will bear his own burden. And of course, that's a statement of judgment, is it not? If that word is any other thing, beloved, than the pure word of God, we'll read in 2 Peter 3 that there are many that pervert the word to their own destruction. In 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 14 through 18, we'll read about a couple of guys who said, you know, the resurrection is past already. And Paul said, their word will eat as a gangrene. As a canker is how it's translated. The Greek word is gangrenos, where we get our word gangrene from. And in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 11, remember in that passage that there are those who, instead of teaching the pure word of God, bind the consciences of the people of God with certain things that are not biblical. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. <coughs> now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Does that remind you of any particular church forbidding to marry? And teaching to abstain from meats which God has given to be received with thanksgiving? Of course it does. That it comes around in the latter days? Notice what the Apostle Paul says. That Timothy, sometimes your ministry is going to have to be a ministry of confrontation. And that will make you a good minister of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. Notice, nourished up in the faith in good doctrine. But these things that, these additions to the word of God, the doctrines and commandments of men, like Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 15, what do they do? They, just, they, they simply destroy the word of God, and in destroying the word of God, they destroy the people of God. And those who feed on a steady diet of the doctrines and commandments of men, beloved, cannot live and be healthy in their souls. Peter says it's the pure word of God that we desire. That pure milk of the word. 
So we can be spoiled, Colossians 2, 4 through 8. We can be beguiled later on in the passage. We can be robbed of our prize through false doctrine in verse 18 of Colossians chapter uh, 2. And then notice also Isaiah chapter 8, verse 9. Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces, and give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. You see, it doesn't matter the word that our enemies would speak and would follow. God is with us. For the Lord spake thus unto me with a strong hand and instructed that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense, to both the houses of Israel and for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter, Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Once again, the pure word of God, unmixed, with the words of wizards that peep and mutter. You know what a wizard is, children? A wizard is someone who, like a witch, turns away from the Lord and claims to have secret or special knowledge of spiritual things. You see them every now and then, don't you? They'll have their, their little shop, and they'll, and they'll have that hand out there on the sign. Have you, you ever seen that? And, they, and, and what they'll tell you is that they can look at the skin on your hand and the lines on your palm and they can tell you what your life will be like. Do you think they'll tell you the truth? If they tell you the truth, it'll be an accident. Because they're liars. They peep and they mutter. They make great pomp and ceremony. But it is not the word of God that they teach. So forth then, and we'll just introduce this topic and we'll come back to it, Lord willing, next week. We want to hear John Brown of, Haddington, sorry, of Edinburgh once again talking about the word of God. Listen to what he says. Desire it as newborn babes. Show that you cannot do without it that you must have it, that nothing will do as a substitute, that you relish it, 
that you are satisfied with it, that you never weary of it, that you return to it again and again with unabated and with ever-increasing delight. This is the second imperative in our narrative. The first was love one another with a pure heart fervently. The second is desire the pure milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Next week we'll talk about why he chose milk. Why milk? Why does that work? There's some wonderful truth there. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee and we thank Thee for placing such a, such a desirable name upon Thy Word as milk, especially as it relates to being godly babes, children. Oh Lord, we pray as we have just been encouraged by John Brown of Edinburgh that we would indeed desire Thy Word, that we would desire it as unmixed, unvarnished as it were that we would desire the hard words as well as the easy ones that we would not be like those who spoke to the prophets and said speak to us smooth words rather that we would be like those who said speak to us the word of god oh lord we pray grant us in thy grace and mercy to us that pure word of god that it would be in that proper context of thy people and the teaching ministry of the church, that we might learn to edify one another, that we should be edified by that teaching ministry ourselves. Lord, that, that thou wouldst place uh, those churches that preach thy word in truth as lights on the hill, and that they would teach thy word without admixture of human error, without pop psychology and the vain philosophies of men. And certainly apart from the idolatry of the wizards and witches. Lord, help us as thy people to desire that alone. The sincere milk of the word. And that we would put ourselves in the way of, of understanding in this. That we would be found at thy gates, at thy posts, at the doors of thy house. That we would be found in the place where that luscious, wondrous river flows. And as Isaiah 66 tells us, that we would slurp, that we would drink up so much. O Lord, we pray, by thy, by thy spirit and through thine appointed means, let down thy word to us, that we may be nourished thereby. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.